Good evening. Kyle Rittenhouse takes a stand in his own defense in a Kenosha, Wisconsin courtroom. Liz Cheney blasts Trump as an enemy of democracy. Sheldon Adelson's wife continues funding the GOP and a temporary restraining order holds at East River Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. President Joe Biden touted his $1 trillion infrastructure plan today as an eventual fix for the nation's inflation and supply chain woes if Americans just have the patience to wait for the construction to begin. The president toured the Port of Baltimore at the start of what's likely to be a national tour to showcase his signature legislation. IBW is going to put in 500,000 charging stations across the country. And guess what? That's in the Recovery Act. Excuse me, that's in the Build Back Better bill, which is not going to raise taxes one single cent. It's totally paid for, totally paid for by making taxes work for people who make over 400 grand and just do their fair share. I'm a capitalist, man. You should be able to be a millionaire or billionaire if you can, but pay your fair share. We're also going to make historic investments in environmental cleanup and remediation. Rebuilding resilience against superstorms and droughts and wildfires and hurricanes. $99 billion in losses because of storms this year. $99 billion. You ever think you'd hear somebody stand up and say the Colorado River is being drained? You ever think you'd see you'd go out more wildfires in the West than the entire and lost, land lost, homes lost, to burn to the ground. I've flown over in Marine One than the entire state of New Jersey, from the Cape all the way to New York. That's how much we've lost in America. 17 Nobel laureates in economics wrote a letter to me about 10 days ago saying this is going to affect, bring inflation down, not up. But best of all, the vast majority of these jobs are going to create, that we're going to create don't require a college degree. Don't require it. This is the ultimate blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. The infrastructure bill cleared Congress last week, and Biden intends to sign it on Monday. That message becoming more critical as the government reported Wednesday. Consumer prices in October climbed 6.2 percent from a year ago. Inflation has intensified instead of fading as the economy reopened after the coronavirus pandemic, creating a major challenge for Biden, whose administration repeatedly said that price increases were temporary. And Iraq's Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadhimi toured a Baghdad neighborhood on foot today, three days after he escaped an assassination attempt at his home in the Iraqi capital. In his first public appearance outside his residence since the attack, and some residents of the eastern neighborhood of Sadr City congratulated him for surviving Sunday's drone attack in which he was lightly injured. There was no claim of responsibility, but suspicion immediately fell on the militias. A top Iranian general visited Baghdad after the assassination attempt against Iraq's prime minister and said Tehran and its allies had nothing to do with the drone attack. But General Frank McKenzie, the commander of U.S. Central Command, told the Washington-based Arabic-language Al-Hura TV that the attack against al-Kadhimi was a criminal act carried out by Iranian-backed militias. Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby seemed to be more deferential to Iran, drawing questions earlier today. We have seen these kinds of tactics, these kinds of tools, UAVs, used by Iran-backed militias in Iraq to target our people, to target our facilities, and of course to target our Iraqi partners. I'm not walking away from the similarities here, 
I'm just saying that I'm not prepared to get into specific attribution at this time, nor would it be prudent for me to do that while the Iraqis are investigating this. And that was John Kirby, Defense Department spokesperson John Kirby. The United States is attempting to lure Iran back into a nuclear deal canceled by former President Trump. Al-Qadhimi on Sunday suffered a light cut and appeared in a television speech soon after the attack wearing a white shirt and what appeared to be a bandage around his left wrist. Seven of his security guards were wounded in the attack using at least two armed drones. Meanwhile, at home, Republican Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming said Tuesday that former President Donald Trump is at war with the rule of law and the Constitution and that GOP lawmakers who sit by silently are aiding his efforts. And at this moment, when it matters most, we are also confronting a domestic threat that we've never faced before. A former president who's attempting to unravel the foundations of our constitutional republic, aided by political leaders who have made themselves willing hostages to this dangerous and irrational man. Just last night, former President Trump was invited by House Republican leaders to be the keynote speaker at our annual large fundraising dinner. At the dinner, he reportedly said once again, that the insurrection was on November 3rd, and that the events of January 6th, when a violent mob invaded the Capitol in an effort to overturn the will of the American people and stop the constitutional process of the counting of electoral votes, that those events were a protest, that they were justified. Political leaders who sit silent in the face of these false and dangerous claims are aiding a former president who is at war with the rule of law and the Constitution. Liz Cheney, Cheney, a Trump critic who is vice chair of a congressional committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection, says the challenge is, is now, now, the challenge now is whether citizens will do their duty and defend the Constitution and stand for truth. The internal divisions between never-Trumpers and pro-Trump Republicans has been roiling the party since Trump's recent statement that the January 6th insurrection was merely a protest and the actual election was the insurrection. But one area the GOP factions seem to agree on is whether to take money from one billionaire casino tycoon Shelton Adelson, who died recently, and his wife Miriam, who's, take up, uh, who's taken up the family's obsession with both Israel and the GOP. Eli Clifton is a senior advisor at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. They certainly helped fund the network of groups and politicians who opposed the Obama administration's efforts to reach a diplomatic agreement to constrain Iran's nuclear program. They have become the largest funders of the Republican Party and Republican candidates. They bankrolled Donald Trump's presidency. They were his top funder. And when they began to fund him, his politics or at least his public statements as a candidate about Israel and the Iran deal changed in a much more hawkish direction. He no longer criticized Israel. He no longer criticized Benjamin Netanyahu and the hardline Likud policies that Netanyahu promotes. Uh, and he ultimately abrogated from the nuclear agreement, something very much in line with what the Adelsons had promoted. Uh, they continued to give generously to think tanks in Washington that, again, create this echo chamber of, of groups pushing for these sort of hardline policies in terms of U.S. foreign policy in, in the Middle East. 
Obviously, that casino license in Macau doesn't come with no strings attached. When Sheldon Adelson was first trying to get his casino license, he was in Beijing, and the story goes, according to the New Yorker, that he told the mayor of Beijing then to help curry favor with Communist Party elites there that he would personally quash a Republican-led statement that they wanted to put out in the House of Representatives opposing Beijing's Olympic bid on human rights grounds due to China's mistreatment of Christians, actually. Tom DeLay killed that statement of opposition. Adelson got his casino license. That license is up for renewal again. They certainly played a role with the Trump administration in trying to promote trade agreements between U.S. and China and trying to tamp down some of the tensions that other people in the Trump administration were pushing for in terms of having a more confrontational relationship with China. And how about his wife, Miriam? Her mourning period is over. She's stepping to the helm now. That's what it seems like. There were questions about whether she would continue to give and to direct the family's money toward Republican Party politics. But as of last weekend, when the Republican Jewish Coalition held its annual major conference and event in Las Vegas, all indications and all the statements that came out of it were confirming that indeed Miriam would be continuing to give in a very large way to the Republican Party. And most of the potential Republicans Republican 2024 presidential candidates spoke at the event, making it very clear that it's not just a sign that she's now indicating that she will be the major fund of the Republican Party, but that all of these candidates are all trying to jockey and position themselves to get her endorsement. Lynn Cheney uh, gave a real big speech in which she really went after Trump. How does this play into the divisions within the Republican Party? The Adelson's seemed as if they were more aligned with folks that you would think of as being never Trump Republicans, such as the neoconservative wing of the party. But they fell in line with Trump and even going so far as to really engage in pretty gratuitous, frankly, deference to Trump and praise of him. Miriam Adelson wrote this uh, op-ed where she said that the Bible should get a book of Trump, much like it has a book of Esther, celebrating the deliverance of the Jews from ancient Persia. She was saying this after Donald Trump made the decision to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So this type of behavior, I think what it really has signaled to the Republican field is that it doesn't really matter what your domestic politics are. It doesn't matter if you say things that are pretty divisive. The point is, as long as you fall in line with the Adelsons on foreign policy, they'll come around to it, especially if you win in the primaries, and they'll support you. That's really the singular issue that seems to galvanize them. Trump claimed he was the chosen one at one point, and he was quite serious about it. The Adelsons, I think, feel like really they are above it all, that they don't get challenged in what they do. And, you know, Kind of in the last days of the Trump administration, there was a convicted Israeli spy, Jonathan Pollard, who had finished his probation. There was an expectation that he would probably not be permitted to have his passport back and to leave the United States. The Adelsons had openly lobbied and pushed for, indeed, Jonathan Pollard and his wife to be permitted to leave. The administration came through for them and for the Pollards and lifted the travel restrictions on him. And he flew in the middle of the night from Newark to, to Tel Aviv, where he arrived and was greeted by Benjamin Netanyahu. And the really striking thing is, is that the plane was recognizable. It was the Adelson's plane. It was one of their 737s. The Republican Party's biggest donor flew a convicted spy out of the United States back to Israel for a hero's welcome. And this barely rose to any level of attention in the media. And Eli Clifton is senior advisor at the Quincy Institute of Responsible Statecraft. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
The murder case against Kyle Rittenhouse was thrown into jeopardy today when his lawyers asked for a mistrial over what appeared to be out-of-bounds questions asked by Rittenhouse, asked of Rittenhouse by the chief prosecutor. The judge didn't immediately rule on the request. The murder case against Kyle Rittenhouse was thrown into jeopardy. Uh, pardon me. I didn't do anything wrong. I defended myself, the 18-year-old said, as he broke into tears as he took the stand, a very rare event in um, – in trials to have the uh, defendant take the stand uh, because of the constitutional right to uh, presumption of innocence. So therefore you have no real reason most of the time to get on the stand and deny that you did something. However, in this case, their facts are not in debate uh, that Rittenhouse was armed, that he shot three people and two of them were killed at a protest against the shooting of Jacob Blake in August last year. Rittenhouse went on to say that I didn't do anything wrong. I defended myself as he broke into tears. About to get this matter. Mr. Rosenbaum was now running from my right side. Um, and I was cornered from in front of me with Mr. Zeminski. And there were... There were three people right there. That's what I run. And that was the opening part of the testimony by Kyle Rittenhouse. In earlier testimony, witnesses, including a survivor, told how an apparently distraught Rittenhouse in August of 2020 told them. He had shot someone. When you get off the roof, do you see Kyle Rittenhouse? Yes, I do. And where do you see him? Inside the shops and down. And how does he look to you? Um, sweating, pale. Does he say anything? Uh, he repeats, uh, I just shot someone over and over. And I believe at some point he did say he had to shoot someone. How did he look to you? Uh, totally in shock. Can you give me some physical uh, descriptors that would make yes i'm sorry um, you... he was pale uh, sh uh shaking uh kind of stuttering stammering his words he was sweating he did he looked at me he said he said right out that he had shot someone and he kind of sat down in the chair and he was looking for his brother he's asking for his brother dominic and he sat down i remember him pulling his hair back and he's pulling it back really hard and just as common was, my God, my life might be over. And just we're just like, OK, calm down. Those were witnesses uh, testifying in the trial, Kyle Wittenhouse, uh, Bruce Schroeder, who's the judge overseeing the case. He's the longest serving circuit court judge in Wisconsin. And he had several angry exchanges with prosecutor Thomas Binger over evidence the judge said had propensity. I had heard nothing in this trial to change any of my rulings. So why? Testimony, Your Honor. Pardon me? That was before the Don't testimony. Don't get brazen with me. Uh, you know very well that an attorney can't go into these types of areas when the judge has already ruled without asking outside the presence of the jury to do so. So don't give me that. There's nothing in your case that suggests the defendant was lying in wait to shoot at somebody or reflecting upon the shooting for a vast amount of time. 
every one of the incidents involves uh, matters that involve seconds in time. And that's Judge Bruce Schroeder. Propensity character evidence is the use of evidence of a person's character or trait or of character to prove that he had a propensity to act in a specific manner. Testimony and questions that speak to propensity in Rittenhouse's character have been ruled off limits by the judge in most cases. During questioning by Binger, uh, Rittenhouse told about how a 17-year-old, he was 17 at the time, got his hands on a gun, an AR-15 assault-style rifle he used to kill two protesters and wound a third. Rittenhouse said his friend, he called him his brother, although they're not related, agreed to buy the gun and hold it for Rittenhouse. His name was Dominic Black. They arrived at Black's parents' house to pick up their guns. It was downstairs in the basement, but it was, I was told by Dominic Black, hey, go downstairs, grab that rifle, grab your rifle. So you knew up until that point that that rifle was being stored in a gun safe in the garage, correct? Correct. And you didn't have the code or any access to that gun safe, correct? I did not. It just happened that on this particular day, Dominic Black's stepfather had moved that gun into the house, correct? Yes. You didn't know that beforehand? I didn't. You didn't know that it had been taken out of the safe? No. And so you went downstairs and grabbed it? After instructed to do so by Dominic, I did. And it had that magazine? After I was instructed to do so. After I was instructed to do so by Dominic, I did go downstairs and grab it. And it had the magazine already inserted in the rifle? It did. And the magazine was already loaded with 30 rounds? I believe so. When did you chamber a round? Um, I don't know if I ever did. Well, you had to have to fire the gun, right? Yeah, I think it, I think it was already chambered when I got it. I, that's what I remember. I don't remember racking it at all that night. Because the way this type of gun works is that you have to have a magazine with ammo in it. You have to insert the magazine into the gun, and then you have to rack it to load one of those rounds into the chamber, correct? Yes. And you were familiar with how to do all that, correct? Yes. And it can't discharge a bullet unless a bullet is racked into the chamber, correct? Correct. And so your testimony here, as best you can recall, is that you never had to do the initial racking because the bullet was already in the chamber when you took possession of it that day. Is yes, that fair to say? I, I, believe so. I believe that it was already racked. And that was Kyle Rittenhouse talking about how he and his brother had uh, stored guns at his brother's family's house where they picked them up before heading to uh, use those guns. At least one of those guns was used to kill two people and seriously wound a third. Rittenhouse, who was 17 at the time, went to Kenosha with the AR-style semi-automatic weapon and a medic bag and what the former police youth cadet said was an attempt to protect property after protesters had set fire and trashed businesses on previous nights. He testified that after killing Joseph Rosenbaum, he fatally shot Anthony Huber after Huber stuck him in the neck with his skateboard and and grabbed his gun. When the third man, Gage Grosenkreutz, lunges at me with his pistol pointed directly at my head, and those are Rittenhouse's quotes, Rittenhouse said he shot him too, wounding him. And in COVID news, Pfizer CEO Albert Buria, in an interview with the Atlantic Council, says a very small group 
has been responsible for spreading lies about vaccinations. A very small part of professionals which they circulate on Mm. purpose misinformation so that they will mislead those that they have concerned. Those people are criminals. They're not bad people. They're criminals because they literally costed millions of lives. And that's Pfizer CEO Albert Burria. Meanwhile, in New York City, where kids are lining up, nearly a million uh, young people between um, uh, the elementary school ages have been uh, lining up or are eligible to get vaccinations. Uh, a, parents are reporting a pumpy rollout for the New York City COVID-19 vaccine clinics. Uh, there for 5 to 11-year-olds at public schools. The city launched the effort Monday morning, offering vaccines at about 200 schools. But many parents said they and their children were turned away when sites ran out of doses. One parent says the vaccination van showed up empty. Others reported delays and long lines. Despite those reports, some kids got their bravely lined up to get their shots and felt all the better for that. I feel good. And what did you say when you first came out here? Why were you the first one? Because I'm really brave. Okay. And tell us why you're brave. Because I'm a big girl now and I'm no longer a little kid. Indiana, can you tell us, did it, did it hurt? Yes. It, it, it did? No, it did not hurt. Just a little bit. Thank you. Did you guys talk to your pediatrician before you got your shot? Yes. Yes. And what and did she, your she said, said it was a great idea. Any other hesitancy at all? Or no, none. None at all. We were just praying for the day because she's the only one in her family that's not vaccinated until today. And now she is, well, at least on her way. And it's such an important step. Come on, we have to end this craziness. This is ridiculous. You know? And the de Blasio administration has promised to offer shots at more than a thousand schools over the next week, serving about 400,000 students. I'm sorry, I got the number right wrong earlier. It's 400,000 students who are potentially uh, eligible to be vaccinated in New York City. To get vaccinated at schools, kids must be accompanied by an adult and have verbal or written consent from a guardian. After getting their shots, staff will schedule students second doses, although officials said those shots will be administered at pharmacies, doctor's offices and other city run sites, not schools. Students and their families will also receive information about how to redeem the $100 prepaid debit cards the city is giving out as incentives. And finally, East River Park, uh, the stop work order at East River Park uh, remains in effect with two more lawsuits headed to court. The bulldozers and chainsaws are still being kept in bay uh, at bay in East River Park, at least for now. The TRO was uh released or was ordered by a judge or appellate panel, really appellate division panel um, last week. The stay remains in effect so far pending the panel's decision on a legal appeal by opponents of the city's Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project. In addition, this coming Friday, another lawsuit pertaining to the park project will be heard in the same court. In that case, Tully, a contractor that sought the contract for the project to elevate the 60-acre East River Park by 8 to 10 feet, will argue that it should have have rightfully won the bid. The only other bidder, IPC Resiliency Partners, 
allegedly is a cobbled together entity, meaning two companies were joined together in order to make the meet the experience criteria for the contract. If uh, Tully wins that case, the contract is void and they would have to rebid the project. That's according to Tommy Loeb, who's a member of East River Park Action. He spoke with WBAI earlier today. There's a temporary restraining order prohibiting any other further work except does the deal run out at some point? $1.5 billion deal, the financing? The only deadline is it was originally about $335 million in federal money as part of this project. But the city has already spent almost $185 million of that because you have to remember north of 14th Street, where work is still continuing, is not part of the lawsuit, nor is it part of East River Park. So that, that section continues to be constructed. So they spent 185 and they have Nydia Velasquez and Carolyn Maloney were able to get an extension of the original date of 2022, and it's been extended at least another year to 2023. There is no immediate drop-dead date that the money has to be spent. What do we know about the new mayor? We don't know. I heard him on Brian Lehrer's show today. He was very supportive of two ideas that have been dropped. One is partially covering the Cross Bronx Expressway, and the other is somehow greening the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. We don't know how familiar he is with this project. It is not widely reported on, even though it's at least a billion and a half dollars. And ultimately, when they add the sewer piece of it, we're talking close to $2 billion dollars. Um, we're not sure how knowledgeable he is, so we're hoping to make that connection soon. There's other lawsuits as well. This Friday, Tully Construction, who were the second highest bidder in this project, have a case that will also be heard at the appellate division this Friday. They are claiming the contractor who won the bid was not qualified. They did not have the requisite amount of experience and dollar value in their experience to qualify for the contract. And then there will be a third lawsuit based on the city's failure to comply with the controller's request and the minority women-owned business requirements that the city and state have. And that lawsuit is going to be entered shortly. There are quite a few legal challenges still ahead. Realistically, are we looking at, is it uh, in our lifetime, even if they approve the project, will they get to it? We need it. Those of us who live right across the street and on the Lower East Side who got flooded by Sandy, this project was supposed to start two years ago. The delays have been all by the city, and we believe that's why we're still asking at some point for this to be reviewed by some independent and outside experts to tell us what's the fastest, quickest cheapest way to protect the community. Tommy Loeb is with East River Park Action. Village attorney and WBAI stalwart and host Arthur Schwartz is representing dozens of local plaintiffs in a community lawsuit to stop the project. He says there was no decision on Monday that would affect the restraining order on construction in the park. He said the court decides when they decide the stay, the stay stays until the panel rules.